0: Dress, the history of fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common every day we all get dressed.
1: Welcome to Dressed. The History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan.
0: Welcome back, dress listeners. And I say back because this is part two today of our episode on the sartorial stylings of Princess Diana. Earlier this week, Eloise Moran joined us to talk about the formation of Lady Di's fashionable persona
1: and some of the designers that the princess worked with uh, to create her signature style. Today, Eloise joins us again to speak a little more about her book, The Lady Look Lookbook, What Diana Was Trying to Tell Us With Her Clothes which details the ways in which Diana wielded her clothing choices as a tool of communication. And as one of the world's most photographed women, it is not an exaggeration that millions of eyes followed her every move. And Diana over the years actually became quite savvy in the art of a well-timed ensemble, particularly with her, as Eloise terms them, revenge looks. (laughs) (laughs) This is so good. It goes without saying, we cannot wait to learn more. Eloise, welcome back.
0: One of the things that I really love about her is, you know, I think this is fascinating that of, given she was a royal and she had, you know, seeming unlimited access to the latest fashions and even collaborating with these designers one on one, that she wasn't necessarily afraid to rewear clothing and garments. And you touch on a little bit about her relationship to sustainability during the 1980s and the 1990s. What was her approach to sustainability? Because this really is an era when this was not a term that was bandied about like it is now today.
2: I mean, i would never heard of sustainability until the last real like 10 years, maybe. I think maybe my family started recycling and like 2008 or something, but it, you know, it wasn't, no one knew what sustainability was or the idea of sustainability or that clothing sort of, you know, having such an impact on the world through kind of water waste and so on and so on. So the only reason Diana started to recycle clothes in the first place is because in the mid eighties, she went on a trip to Italy and apparently, her wardrobe bear in mind—she had to change four times a day and step out at these official events. Um, but her wardrobe ended up costing reportedly hundred thousand pounds, and that was reported in the press. And she she read it because she was, you know, she was her own worst critic. She read all the reviews about her. She read all the papers. She was very self, you know, self-conscious of her image. And she couldn't believe that it cost £100,000, but she was assured, yes, that is what it cost. And it came from um, the Duchy of Cornwall, which is, you know, the big bank account of Prince Charles, because he actually pays for all their clothes, which is quite funny. And she was kind of shamed by it and ashamed by it. She was from very early on. She was very aware of what regular people didn't have, as opposed to what she and her new family did have, and I think she there was sort of embarrassment behind that. So, after that, is really interesting because you see her maybe taking these um evening looks and then tra- like having the neckline recut or mm-hmm. sleeves moved and things changed around to so she could wear it again and it would be kind of a fresh outfit. And then you know, you see her playing with accessories, she wore um. A little choker necklace she then wore it as kind of a, a headband and it's really fun to see how she um, started you know to pay attention to that and to be conscious of that and then another other ways that she was sustainable she used to um obviously she had so many gifts and they got so many wedding presents and she first of all took things to charity she always took a big Dump of clothing to charity, which is just what we do. She's just like us. And then she used to have these um, car boot sales. Do you guys call them car boot sales here?
0: Yeah, I guess we would maybe call them like um, garage sales.
2: Or like if you live
0: in the city, maybe it's a stoop sale.
2: Right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So she had her <laughs> own personal kind of stoop sale. <laughs> the fucking <Super> <laughs> Palace or Kensington Palace. And um, all of her family and friends would come and they'd kind of go through everything. And what was interesting is she'd take the money, the pocket money from that, and she'd take her kids off to the cinema and she'd go and sort of treat herself to something. (laughs) And it's quite nice to think that in a way that was her way of making her little bit of spending money that she didn't have to go to Charles for. It's so weird to think about someone else having, you know, control over your, finances and so she she really used it as pocket money and then she gave things to friends and then I think after the breakup there's lots of different ways she got rid of stuff and she obviously things were auctioned as well so
0: mm-hmm. there's one particular auction that happens in 1997 I believe that we might touch on later
2: right yeah the Christie's
0: Yeah, and some of the looks that were in the Christie's Auction were actually some of her evening wear looks. So I'm hoping that we can turn our attention to that and talk about some of her most famous evening wear looks and one in particular that can be categorized as the revenge look. So if some of our listeners are unfamiliar with this concept of a revenge look, how would you like to define that?
2: Okay, so I think a revenge look is really... To put it plainly, it's an outfit you would step out wearing that would make your ex wish he was never born, pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) Or just make them really, really sad and just like, damn, like... I I lost that or I screwed that up. You know, I think it's quite a funny, fun way to think about it. And also, you know, I think the interesting thing about revenge and kind of where I got this idea from is, you know, if you've been through something bad, it doesn't have to be a breakup. It could be, you know, leaving a bit of a toxic job or you have a toxic boss or something. There is um, a grieving process in a way and you do feel you know, first, obviously you feel quite shocked and then, you know, the anger steps in and then you do feel a bit like vengeful and it's a totally normal, relatable instinct and feeling. And we all have it. And I just, I think one of the things about revenge I found really interesting, especially with women, is there are so many of these kind of dangerous notions of what revenge means when it relates to women. But with men, it's kind of, more accepted. It's like, oh, yeah, he's a man. He can do that. But with women, it's, well, oh, she's bitter. She's twisted. She's so jealous, blah, blah, blah. But I do think it's kind of a part of healing and it's an essential step you need to take. And in a way, if you take that instinct and channel it into something like your clothing, which ultimately is a very positive thing and it's self-expression in a way. And maybe you do want to get your own back through stepping out looking shit hot. But what's wrong with that? You know, I think... <laughs> that's such a cool idea and like that's what I really recognized in Diana I found that in myself I probably dressed the best I ever did in those two years after my big breakup so I think it's such an inspiring feeling for anyone who's kind of going through it you know and so that's what a revenge outfit is it doesn't have to be a dress it can be anything that's just quite fabulous so um And Diana's famous revenge dress, for anyone who doesn't know, she wore in 1994 to the Serpentine Gala um, in London. It was the same night that Prince Charles appeared on television where he admitted his marital indiscretions with Camilla Parker Bowles. And um, it's kind of an awkward thing to watch. I've watched it a few times, especially in my research for the book. And he's asked about it and he admits to it. He says he only started the affair when the marriage had irretrievably broken down but there's definitely a bit of a smirk on his face and Diana knew that this documentary was coming out that evening so her move was to step out in a fabulous essentially a mini dress and um, made of black chiffon it had a mini train it was off the shoulder so very sexy um, She was kind of displaying her fabulous body after, you know, really taking exercise seriously. And and she's wearing Manolo Blahnik's, these sheer stockings, red nails, like basically everything that you're not meant to wear as a princess or someone (laughs) in the royal family. It was super sexy, especially for the time. And, um, you can honestly, you can dissect every single part of that outfit and point to it's so thought out and it's so, you know, everything, everything's illegal, like the heel height, the hem length, the color black, the color black, the off the shoulder, how much kind of decolletage she was showing. And, um, I, and there's something so inspiring about it. And, you know, I you know implore you all to watch that video too of her stepping out because it really is such a power moment I think aside from the outfit it's the whole thing it's the walk it's the smile it's the head held high and Charles used to kind of really sulk when she'd get she'd be on the front pages of the newspapers when they'd kind of both be um, in attendance somewhere and he got a bit jealous of the attention she was getting. And of course, I think you, you do have to wonder if that night, did she want to steal the papers from him the next day? And she did. And I mean, people knew what it was right away. And mm-hmm. the headlines were the revenge dress or uh, and then another another headline was the thriller. He left to woo Camilla. <laughs> you know, it was kind of it, Bit derogatory, but also everybody knew what she was doing and you can see she had a great time doing it. So if you apply that to your own life and have your own revenge moment, and we all have Instagram, so you know your ex is watching, basically. <laughs> <laughs> it is really wonderful.
0: I want to talk a little bit more about revenge and this One, maybe more on the private side, but it has been acknowledged. Um, You know, in the States, we have this phrase, revenge is a dish best served cold. I don't know if you have that phrase in the UK or if you (laughs) use it. But um, Diana may have disagreed with the coldness of this tactic because you note an occasion where she actually ordered some things to be incinerated, to be burned. Will you tell us about this? I mean, this, this is classic revenge. <laughs> classic
2: revenge. This is kind of the, you know, leans into the tropes of the kind of psycho ex, but no, she had, first of all, okay, so when Charles moved out, once they kind of, you know, were living separate lives, she ordered kind of a bunch of the things that they got at their wedding, their shared furniture to be burnt um, at Highgrove, I believe, and um, in, and the first order of business was they had this giant mahogany bed. And she said, that's the first thing I want gone. And which I think is so funny, because it's true, you know, your bed holds a lot of energy. And it's. she was like, get that bed away, her marital bed gone. So she did have a lot of his things and their, their shared things burnt. Um, so that wasn't, that's sustainable of her, to be honest. I think there could have been homes, you know, for all of those things, but she did do that. So she, Diana, believed that revenge was best served piping hot, I think, <laughs> bonfire. And there's something so fabulous about thinking that she ordered a literal bonfire, not for it yes. taken away somewhere. It was a bonfire, so that is quite amazing. But then also, it does make you think there was probably, you know, so so much for raw and interest into their you know their marital problems at the time it's kind of weird to think that there would have been a market for buying those items so it kind of it does make sense a bit and in a way you know when you're um you know when you have like a triggering you have your ex's like sweatshirt or something which that Mm -hmm. always happens with me I always end up with these sweatshirts that like smell like what whichever ex and I'm that's the first thing I want gone I mean and in my head I think I wish I could Burn them, you know. <laughs> Apparently, you can, even if you're a princess. <laughs> Not in California, because the whole place <laughs> would be in flames. But um, yeah, no, I think that was very relatable. Obviously, obviously, she did it on kind of this <laughs> on a much grander scale than than the average person. But I think every woman gets that. She also had really funny cushions and artwork in her home. She had. You know, it played into her sense of humor. I think she had one cushion that said, You have to kiss a lot of frogs before you meet your prince, which is quite funny, playing on mm-hmm. ironic.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, she had a few years to kind of play with, you know, stepping out like that because they separated in 1992 but they actually didn't get divorced until 1996. So that was a four-year time period. And I think that that is the time when we see her style, and obviously this probably applies to like her interiors as well, become a lot more playful. And the greatest evolution kind of happens within that time in terms of her kind of stepping out as a sex symbol. Would you agree with that?
2: Yeah, I completely agree. I think once the actual separation happened, there's kind of this visible lightness in her clothing. And, and um, I think 93 and 94, there are some great looks there, more of kind of these off-duty looks where she was kind of trying to decide if she wanted a public or a private life. But then I think after the revenge dress um, that we just talked about, I think after that, you just it gets kind of sexier and sexier and it's almost like you can see her trying to one-up the last outfit and um, so many amazing she loved a shift dress and she looked so great in shift dresses they just really kind of suited her frame she had a very athletic frame also the designers some of the designers I spoke to definitely attested to that too and Jacques Azaguri said she kind of wanted the the hemlines to be getting shorter and they would just creep up and up and they'd have to I think it would be Him and Paul Burrell there, her butler, and they'd have to remind her, you know, you're still a princess, you can't go too short. (laughs) She's really tall as well. And she had a lot of legs. So, but there is something really great about that. And, you know, it's really interesting that when we're in our twenties, like arguably you could say it like there's this whole thing, women are in their prime in their twenties and they look the best in their twenties. But I think when you get into your thirties, you just, build this sense of confidence and you know she was working out taking care of herself building her self-esteem and I think you can see that she did feel you know she felt sexy in herself and I think that's so amazing that's so inspiring and it just shows you know as you age you build confidence and there's something so um, liberating about that Mm -hmm. and I think we really see that in her style and she kind of developed her signature style you see less of the experimentation in the 90s and more of this is who I am now and you better deal with it. (laughs) Well the message has become
0: very clear um her style is seems very crystalline unique to her I would argue.
2: I agree um I think obviously I, I do think the most we ever saw her style kind of reflecting maybe the fashion trends of the outside world and kind of leaning a bit more to this international icon look was in 1997, where she was traveling a lot, spending a lot of time in New York. She loved New York. um, And I think she loved American style too, 90s, you know, New York style. She loved the minimalist, especially in contrast to these crazy maximalist outfits that she used to have to wear. Um, But I think the hard part was she was trying you know, trying to find the line between. She was, after all, and wanted to be an ambassador to the nation. So she still had to dress, you know, very professionally. She couldn't, you know, step out in an outfit that, you know, I don't know. Naomi Campbell or someone's wearing even though she had this supermodel like figure because she did still have duty, and she took that seriously but I think ultimately she just ended up looking really modern and current and timeless and uh, you know that's why we still look at her outfits now and some of them don't look like they've aged at all they look like you know you could find them on the in the stores right now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean,
2: especially with the 90s coming back in the way that it has the
0: last two or three years, for sure. Yeah, i Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone.
1: You will sleuth with June in the
0: antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens.
1: And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us dress listeners in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. So,
0: you read in the book that the firm and the press didn't just underestimate Diana, they failed completely to understand the immense power of clothes. And, you know, she really did wield her wardrobe as this uh, almost like a weapon at some points, but definitely always as a form of communication. So I'm hoping you might want to talk a little bit about that. And then also the 1997 Christie's auction that we referenced earlier, because in, in that capacity, her wardrobe served as a form of charity as well.
2: Yeah, totally. So I think going to your first point, going back to um, how Diana was, you know, considered to be a clothes horse, and that was kind of all she was good for, in inverted commas, as far as the newspapers saw her. Um, I think over time, she did realise the impact her clothing was happening, her messages were kind of getting through, whether it was just, simply saying, you know, I'm not going to stand in the shadows of my husband anymore. In By 1985, 1986, he reignited his affair with Camilla. So she stepped out wearing these dazzling sequins because it drove him crazy. It drove his people crazy that she was kind of getting so much attention. And then in the 90s, I think she became, as far as the eyes of the palace, saw her a bit of a loose cannon. And I think they were, you know, she was, As far as they were concerned, she was becoming a bit unpredictable. And first of all, this biography came out and there was so much truth in there. They were kind of like, well, how there must have been people who knew that she had something to do with it, that she had told her story um, and it had, you know, been leaked or however gotten to Andrew Morton. So I think they must have been aware that she did that firstly, which was quite a bold move in 92. you've got the serpentine moment in 1994 you've kind of they're watching people's reaction to her people's take people taking sides on the diana in the charles and diana war the war of the Wales as they called it and i think they realized that public opinion was totally on diana's side and you know Mm -hmm. there's always been this thing in the monarchy where they had to have to tread very carefully because their survival really relies On kind of being in the favor of the people and there was a lot that I think there's too much to talk about you know for this podcast but there's a lot that happened you know in the 90s just in terms of like society and politics and people I think were really sort of dissatisfied and with the monarchy and you know they did side with Diana so she kind of became dangerous for them so what's quite interesting is when she loved to keep her clothing a secret. So when she stepped out, she'd love to see not only people's reactions, but how it was going to play out. And I think that was her way of having fun and feeling liberated and fighting back. And we definitely see that, obviously, in her Panorama interview, how she described the ways in which she what she was fighting back against and how she felt and the position she was in so um that was definitely the way she used clothes and kind of what again sorry to go back to the clothes horse thing I think just calling someone a clothes horse in a way is obviously really derogatory and it's really like rude (laughs) and it kind of implies that that person has nothing else to say or give. But to all those people who believe she was a clothes force and, you know, kind of good for nothing, well, you look, she changed the entire attitude towards the royal family. She changed mm-hmm. people's attitude towards, you know, divorce and marriage and, you know, life after divorce, being a single woman. And she did that largely through clothes because, okay, she appeared at a lot of events, she did a, lot of pub- a few public speeches, but really the only one-on-one dialogue we have with Diana is from this Panorama interview and then some of the secret tapes that were released kind of after her death. So what we mainly have is this insane archive of clothes that says so much. So anyone who doesn't believe that clothes are important or clothes kind of can't change an entire narrative or just in terms of yourself, make you feel a certain way, bring you confidence. I mean, Diana proved all of those people that they were wrong and made them look incredibly stupid. So um, I think that must have been quite a great feeling for someone who had been called dumb, been called stupid. You know, her intelligence was always criticized, but I think she was just an incredibly creative and emotionally intelligent person. Yeah. And then, To your point about the Christie's auction, um, she did, she auctioned off, I believe it was 79 dresses. And a lot of them were from the eighties. They They're kind of really elaborate gowns, including, you know, the famous Elvis gown that she wore. And apparently her son said it was too awful to sell at auction and no one would buy it. But of course it went (laughs) hundreds of thousands or something. And, um, so in a way, I think that was, you know, was what one writer, I forgot who wrote it, said it was kind of auctioning off the relics of her past. And they were kind of just these, you know, hollow, empty shells. And it really is that feeling. It kind of gives me chills thinking about it, you know, shredding off these old skins and, you know, donating it on, just saying this, this means nothing to me and but this money will go to what I really care about which was charity and fighting for people and caring for people and that was the direction she was heading in in her life and I think that's the most important takeaway from that auction was you know aside from the glamorous outfits and the clothing that really what became most important to her was her work and her clothing in the last few months of her life definitely reflected this working woman and know, she meant business. It wasn't about the distractions and the frills and the, you know, maybe these kind of PR moments. It was about really getting her hands dirty.
0: Yeah, for sure. And this that was always something that she was never shied away from, even her, as her years officially as part of the royal family and as princess. Um, That was very much um, near and dear to her heart, the role that she played with the people
2: absolutely but then if you think about it when she was doing well she was was of course doing all that work but then she was also kind of wearing these gowns and still kind of you know enacting her revenge and making these big statements and there's something quite amazing after the Christie's auction it almost takes the story you know for us to a close to a close it's kind of like she came full circle and in you know At least I look at at Diana as this ultimate kind of story of healing, and Mm -hmm. um, I think by the end, whether whether she was or not, it definitely looked we can perceive it to you know she'd healed, she'd moved on, she's letting it go, and definitely by looking at her final outfits, you can see it's kind of so it's just what any other you know regular woman in the '90s, fashionable woman in the '90s would wear, and really simple. So I think that was that's nice.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure that auction was probably very much part of that healing process.
2: Yeah, totally, completely. It's like, I mean, I've definitely done it where you know you have a big wardrobe clear out, closet clear out, and you think, oh, this reminds me of like an older time in my life. Or I've outgrown this. It's this idea of outgrowing your clothing and you know embodying something new. Mm-hmm.
0: So, I have one last question for you. I'm curious, what do you think that Princess Diana? would have liked for all of us to take away from her relationship with dressing and fashion over the years? You know, what would her parting message to us be on that front?
2: I think ultimately dress according to you and who you are and be true to yourself. Um, I think maybe don't be afraid to experiment and fail because she, of course, did that many times she had many kind of dud outfits and scary outfits and (laughs) and I think again to the point of clothing just being extremely powerful and if you feel disempowered in some way your clothing can be your armor and it can protect you or it can you know send a message out that you want to get across Um, but ultimately I think as much as clothing can help us through our life and you know help us define our self-expression, our narrative, they're not that important. And don't be afraid to let go of your old clothes and, you know, move into something new. And I think in the end, yes, clothes were definitely a weapon for her and, you know, a tool for her. But I think by the end, what was most important to her was like what she was doing for others and her family. And I think that is just Of course, you know, it's nice having nice clothes, but ultimately what really, really matters in your life is kind of, you know, your health, your family and the people around you. So I think maybe that's that's my interpretation of what she would want people to know about maybe her clothes and how they come across to us now.
0: Eloise, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I loved the book. I learned so much. I, I have been um, you know, following Princess Di over the years because I'm a little bit older than you, but I had no, not even a clue about the in-depthness of her wardrobe and all the intricacies
1: of her wardrobe. So I learned a lot from your book. Thank you so much.
2: That's amazing. Thank you so much. I'm happy you enjoyed it.
1: Eloise, thank you so much for this examination into the power of style as wielded by one of the 20th century's great fashion icons. We say on the show time and time again that fashion is inherently political, and when the wearer is a politician or a public figure like Princess Diana, it goes without saying that the stakes can be all that much higher. And at that level, decorum, diplomacy, and discourse can all be sparked by something as simple as the choice of a dress and as a sortorial misstep, conversely, devastating.
0: That does it for us today, Dress listeners. May you consider how your ensemble expresses your politics next time you get dressed. Remember, we do love hearing from you, so if you would like to write to us, you can do so by emailing us at dress at iheartmedia.com Or you can DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, which is, of course, where we post images accompanying each week's episodes. If you would like to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, it's
1: always appreciated. Just like we always appreciate our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes this show possible each and every week. We will catch you with more Dressed on Tuesday.